Welcome to the revolution. Welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and I've got with me today, Bob Runnels out in Washington state with informed choice, Washington, and also with children's health defense multiple hat wear as am I. Hey, Bob. Hi, Bernadette. Thanks hey. for having me. Oh, you betcha. So um, I'm going to start off uh, saying that the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of our wonderful free speech KKNW or CHDTV. This is just Bob and I talking about information that we feel everybody needs to know and hear and explore. And you know what, Bob, I also want to add to anybody at the Washington State Department of Health who may be watching this. I know that some individuals there do kind of keep an eye on what we're doing. I think it's, I think it's very unfortunate that we don't have active dialogue. I've, you know, been asking for years, can we please dialogue on issues? Let's find our common ground and work out from there and see if we can, you know, push things in the right direction, at least on the things that we agree with. But it seems the opposite has happened, that the uh, their ability to even communicate with us, their inner office memos, which we've seen through public records requests, more and more say do not engage, which is a shame. It's, it's very sad. And um, so one other thing, Bob, I want to say as we, as we kind of begin this, I haven't even said what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about the July 13th Washington State Department of Health vaccine advisory committee meeting. So there was just some really interesting things and important things discussed and said in that meeting. So Bob and I felt we really needed to take some time to go over this. Um, so in order to really engage though, what I would like to do is you and I have the attitude that some of those people at the Department of Health are listening and they're listening with open minds earnestly, you know, so if we can't have the dialogue, let's at least have this respectful back and forth um, with trying to tell them why we have concerns about certain things. I'll try not to be overly snarky. <laughs> and, um, you know, anyway, um, and, a, and a head hat tip, Bob, to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who yesterday when he was being um, interviewed by Congress um, on the issue of censorship and how much he has been censored. And then there were certain legislators that were attempting to silence him that talked over the top of him, wouldn't get words in edgewise. And they kept trying to censor him. They kept attempting to go to executive committee so that the public wouldn't be able to witness what he was saying. Um, He's he's such an ethical individual. What he said, he went off script. He didn't. He had five minutes to give an introductory talk, and instead he said, "I think we need a nation to get back to dialogue and to being respectful and kind and talking to each other." Right? Mm -hmm. And I always want to keep that in mind. It's very easy to get angry, you know. And I have moments, ah, but 
we want to get back to respectful dialogue, even if it's going to be happening in this really disjointed way. <laughs> that said, here we go. Um, and uh, okay, so Bob, let's start with telling viewers what the VAC is. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and share the um, Vaccine Advisory Committee purpose statement so we can all uh, talk about this and see what it, oops, where did it go? Okay, here is their purpose statement. The purpose of this committee is to provide recommendations to the Washington State Department of Health on issues related to the use of vaccines and other medications. I've actually never seen them use other medications or talk about them, but anyway, for the public health response to infectious diseases and for current management of vaccine preventable diseases across a person's lifespan. Now, Bob, I didn't expect to have a good comment here for the Department of Health, but shall we ask them now, like, could you please begin to incorporate other medications into your discussions for infectious disease? How about a review on the science of ivermectin for the prevention and treatment of SARS-CoV-2 and RSV as studies are beginning to emerge on? Yeah, that is interesting in that the word vaccine is part of the committee title, but they do allow, I guess, the other infectious diseases treatments to be included in their advice that they yeah. give. I do find it curious that we have a vaccine advisory committee in Washington. For some reason, they feel the need to uh, parallel what takes place at the CDC with the ACIP, mm -hmm. the ACIP, what takes place at the FDA with the VRB pack. It's interesting. I, yeah. I just, uh, yeah. what kind of power or pull does the vaccine advisory committee have? The, the way I see it um, as an outsider, and I, years ago, I began attending these meetings in person. And then, you know, COVID hit, you couldn't go in person anymore. And now I think that they're strictly online. Um, was that it was a way for the medical community to pull all the new information together and sit together as a group and discuss the latest things, you know, to kind of keep up to date, because there is a lot of information out there. Um, so I can kind of see rather than each person at DOH happened to go watch the ACIP meeting or whatever. You could have one person reporting on the ACIP meeting and other people reporting and this and that. So, um, but what they're not doing is anything new for themselves. They're sort of accepting what's coming their way um, to give them credit. I have seen over the years occasionally where they will do some critical thinking and make some decisions that aren't 100% in alignment with ACIP or with the CDC, it's very, very rare. But for the most part, they do um, follow and accept whatever comes down the pipeline from ACIP. Yeah, that's my impression. And there was a lot of visibility last year, about a year and a half ago almost now, when the technical advisory group was reviewing COVID shots for kids Yes, here in the state. And, and that tag, the technical advisory group, that's not related to the VAC, right? No, that they would assemble, they would assemble from the community, from Washington State, various individuals, stakeholders, they would call them, you know, doctors, clinicians, um, 
and members of the public, I, a couple, I guess, but not us, <laughs> um, to review. One thing about Washington that I found, I, I found wonderful is they do have really good systems in place to review things. So from the surface and the outside, it appears that they, they do a really good job being very careful in their decision-making process. But when it comes to vaccines, we have found that um, their prejudice toward vaccines being safe and effective and necessary is so strong that their systems do not let in um, with any weight at all, anybody critical as we are, right? Um, so, you know, kudos to them for setting up really good structure. But if you are so devoted, and they use the word dogmatic, I've heard a couple of times, in fact, in this recent VAC meeting, um, I think it was Dr. Duchin said, we can't be so dogmatic um, about our approach to vaccinating for COVID moving forward, um, that we just um, we just put it in the lineup and forget about it because in the context of that, he was talking about how the CDC tends and the FDA in order to simplify things kind of want to make it an annual flu type shot. And he was, he was saying that's not how COVID works. It's not seasonal. At least we haven't seen seasonality yet. So while he wasn't, you know, using the caution in the way that I would want, he was, doing that critical thinking of we need to do what the science says. We just disagree on what science to look at, right? <laughs> so it could be frustrating. These Some of these people are, you know, it's like, uh, that's why I wish we could have real respectful dialogue. Um, so anyway, so the rationale for this committee, they say, is current clinical expertise and recommendations provided by healthcare providers experienced in relevant fields of vaccinology, preventive medicine, vaccine preventable disease management, pediatrics, infectious disease, epidemiology, internal medicine, and family practice will provide guidance to the Department of Health and inform the strategic implementation of vaccine usage and vaccine administration at the clinical level. Um, but again, Bob, these are all individuals who 100% believe in vaccination. And there are, there is no study, um, even the naturopath that is on this committee is absolutely 100% pro-vaccination, including COVID, HPV, all of them, um, which to me does not represent what naturopathy is all about, but that's where some of them have gone. So um, would you like to see a list of... Um, the individuals on the committee. Shall we show that? Yeah, I think that's probably okay. worthwhile. It is a large committee as well. Member roster. Let's see, now tell me, where did we end up? Is it still sharing? Yay, it's still sharing, okay. Um, member roster here. So we've got the chair is Dr. Tao Kwan Get, who's the chief science officer with the Washington State Department of Health. Managed care is Dr. John Dunn of Kaiser Permanente. He's been on this for many, many years. And in fact, years ago, um, I was once invited to sit on a technical advisory group and John Dunn was also on there. And later on in our discussion um, about exemptions, I'll tell you a, a discussion we had, this was like five years ago, um, Bob. So he's been on a very long time. Uh, American Indian Health Commission for Washington, Wendy Stevens. 
state agency healthcare purchasers, Dr. Christopher Chen, National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners has an open seat. The naturopathic medicine is Dr. Mary Allison um, Kenke, I think is pronounced. Um, Washington Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Gretchen LaSalle and Dr. John Merrill Stespel. Uh, Washington Chapter of American Academy of Pediatrics is Dr. Daniel Mormon and Dr. Stephen Pearson. Washington State Association of local, local Public Health Officials is Dr. Mark Larson from Kittitas County and Stephan, Stephane Stuckey from San Juan County Health. Public Health um, Representative is Dr. Jeffrey Duchin, and he also um, has some involvement with ASIP, the National Association of um, uh, Committee. We've got the Internal Medicine Organization, Dr. Mary Anderson, Washington State Pharmacy Association, Dr. Jen Jenny Arnold. So the pharmacists are represented here, which I think is really interesting. Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction, Annie Hetzel. I've had some really good discussions with Annie Hetzel over the years. She's very respectful. She's really good to dialogue with. So I do appreciate that. We don't see eye to eye on, on everything, but um, she's very respectful and open to dialogue. Um, Childcare, Anita Alkir. There's an open seat with the Urban Indian Health Institute. Northwest Tribal Epidemiology Epidemiology Centers, Tam Lutz. Looks like we've got quite a few of the Native American. That's like the third one that I read off. American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, Dr. Elisa Kachikis. Um, consultants are Dr. Beth Harvey and Dr. Edgar Marcuse. And Bob, Dr. Marcuse is um, somebody we are going to be talking about uh, quite a bit in this because those of you who, who saw the cover image where we said there was an um, expert doctor, pro-vaccine doctor, who is opposed or very cautious of recommending the flu, uh, RSV, and COVID shots all at the same time, he had something to say on that. So we're going to be getting to that a little bit later in the show. And right. then- he mentioned just real quick. He he mentioned he has a lifelong career in vaccines. Lifelong, yes, very life. He's he's a contemporary of Stanley Plotkin and Fauci. And uh, one of the documents we'll be discussing later, he was the subject matter expert on with Stanley Plotkin. So yes, he is very important. Um, and he lives in Washington State, and he's been on this vaccine advisory board for a long time. Um, I have found, uh, we'll, we'll get to um, Dr. Marcuse when we get to that. So then there's a list of the Department of Health staff that are there. Some of them are new since, um, since we've been able to meet in person. And really that's the best way to really get respectful dialogue and begin to find that common ground. But we are not afforded that interaction anymore at this stage, I'm hoping that you and others with Informed Choice Washington, Bob, will eventually get back to being able to have this dialogue um, and that we can push it forward. And there was a hint, wasn't there, in this meeting that there's some things that they are talking about that are important to us. So there could be some common ground that we could connect. Yeah, this, this meeting was routine at first, it seemed. Yeah. And we've listened to quite a few now over the years. It was routine with their updates, but then it seemed to take a turn and they were talking about subjects that 
we've brought up in our public comments and other email communications. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think it's a great idea for us to do a bit more uh, exposure, talking about all these different topics that they brought up. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, you have got you, you did a great job going through and bullet pointing for us, Bob, all the, the things that we want to talk about. So do you want to go ahead and, and open up the discussion on the first point you'd like to discuss? Well, I just thought it was interesting when we get into the uh, updates on the childhood schedule, the uh, Heidi Kelly gave an update on what the ASIP had reported about at their most recent meetings. Yes. And, uh, and the ASIP is the federal, the um, advisory committee on immunization practices, and they recommend to the CDC. And if they recommend something to the CDC, the CDC will add it to the pediatric or adult vaccination schedule. So when you say ASIP, that's what we're right. referring to. to let, yep. No, that's okay. Just for newcomers, we'll just try to let them know our, um, our acronyms that that and I've got once we get started on that I've got some uh, resources to pull up there and as as you pull up um, Bob what you want to show here I want to do a little aside something we're going to need to dig into the CDC is putting out social media posts saying that they're recommending to OBGYNs that in July and August they give flu vaccines to pregnant women in the third trimester. Why? Why? In July and August, why are they saying give these women the flu vaccine? It's very, very concerning. Number one, it's an off-label recommendation. The flu vaccine has never been licensed for use in pregnancy for protection of the infant. The safety studies have not yet been done. Um, and two, even when there is a strain match with the flu vaccines, they wane very rapidly. In fact, it was this very committee, the Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting, that they talked about several years ago, the fact that you do not want to administer the flu vaccine too early before flu season, because if you do it like more than two months before, I mean, it only lasts about two months at the best. It's like every day it wanes a little bit. So at the end of that two months, you've got zero protection. Within a couple of weeks, any protection you might have had has been drastically, it decreases every single day. So if you're giving, if you're thinking you're protecting the mother or the infant by giving them a, a flu shot in July or August, what the heck? This yeah. makes zero sense to me. We need to go down the um, um, rabbit hole on why they're making this recommendation. Right. And I did not have time to go look at the science behind any of these recommendations, but it okay. seems like they're being very cavalier with yeah. this increased amount of vaccination. And yeah, there's a good slide that just talks about the different topics that the ACIP talked about. Okay. And, and so the, uh, Shall there, I go ahead and play that in here. Sorry. Do you want me to go ahead and play that? Yeah, let's, uh, well, yeah, they're going to talk about, uh, this is a clip from Heidi just before this slide, I think, in talking about the the um, the various updates to the recommended schedule. It's going to touch on polio, it touches on the flu vaccine, okay. and it touches on uh, RSV. So okay. uh, we can play clip one. And I okay. think it's interesting to look for a mention, how cavalier they are about allergies. Oh, 
Yeah. And yeah, I've got more information on, on that. Okay, here we go. This is, again, this is a clip from the Washington Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting on July 13th. Let's see if I get There were several informational topics that they covered. Um, the first was the RSV vaccine uh, for pregnant persons. And um, with that, they did say that um, they, they looked at the data giving the vaccine uh, to the, the pregnant person before delivery, and then um, maybe using the nursimumab, I can never say that, um, and it's a long-acting monoclonal antibody, um, you know, what, what would look right um, and provide the best, they, they both would provide um, good coverage for the baby, but um, they're still waiting on um, final data for that. So they plan on coming back in meeting and possibly voting on best recommendations this fall. Oh, right. that was so I apologize. Okay. That's mostly about the RSV for pregnant and birthing persons. Yeah, that's, and, yeah, and that's very, go ahead. And, and the baby being given a co-administered, I guess, uh, a monoclonal antibody against RSV. Yeah. So there's so much here that could be a show in its own. I encourage people to go watch the actual um, ACIP meeting where the discussion took place, where the um, vaccine manufacturers came forward with their data. It's very concerning. It seems as if ever since COVID rolled out, there is no vaccine that is ineffective enough, <laughs> unsafe enough, or um, unnecessary enough that they will not recommend it. Um, it. It's just extremely concerning. And there's an excellent article at uh, Children's Health Defense um, magazine, The Defender. So if you go to The Defender and you look up that um, monoclonal antibody for newborns, you will see an analysis of the, the clinical. There were uh, like, I think nine infants died in the clinical trial for the an, um, monoclonal antibody. It's very concerning. And um, it, it's very concerning when you have a pharmaceutical product and the company that is going to profit potentially in the billions is allowed to determine what is caused by their product and what is not, rather than having some third party. Um, and we need to, people need to understand that the FDA does not independently test anything they license. They accept the word of the pharmaceutical company that's standing to make a whole lot of money. So um, I'll go ahead and, um, and we'll take that one down and we'll, we'll move on to the next one. Let's see if this yeah, is Yeah, and the next, next topics one. I thought you might bring up would be slide one. Is on this? The fall flu shot, since you had touched on the fall flu shot. I'm, I'm kind of looking to see if I can figure out, is this, is this the one you're looking for? Mm, no. Um, were you? Study, studies on the VSD is slide three. Okay. Which is what you're see. showing now. And Sorry about that. Get me too. I am not seeing in the lineup the, um, I'm sorry, Bob. The, um, okay, sorry. And then so, but, the, but, the point would be, if we're mm -hmm. going to go in, in order here for people that might even want to watch the whole video, but at one point, you know, they're talking about the flu shots again for the fall. Yes. And 
and they're putting out some updates from the ACIP and they mention, oh, if you have an egg allergy, that has been a concern in the past. Yes. For flu shots, because they incubate the antigens, the little beasties inside of egg cultures, egg albumin cultures is where they would grow the, uh, the that's where they would grow the, the beasties of interest. I don't know how else to call it right now. Yes. And, and then the, the residual portions of the egg would almost become an adjuvant. Yes. And as you inject it into a body that your body then looks at the residual proteins from that, that carrier or the, the call it maybe a contaminant inside of the vaccine and your body builds an immune response to it. So people might develop an egg allergy from that, whatever the cause of the egg allergy, there are people with egg allergies. And now the ACIP is saying, don't worry about it. Go ahead and inject those people. And they've been moving in this direction for a very long time. Um, attempting to say that the whole, I, I, I don't think I have the link here, but when you now look at contraindications to vaccination, a lot of it is not, some of it is allergy to the components. If you know they're already allergic to it, you know, severe allergy to a, a vaccine ingredient, do not administer, except for egg. <laughs> um, it, and that's what it now says. But for what they're really moving toward is unless only if you've had an anaphylactic reaction to a previous dose of that product, is it now contraindicated for you? Mm, right. So you have to um, find out. You have to actually go through the pain. Right. And, and Bob, I remember in 2019, when the Washington state legislature was moving to remove the personal exemption to the MMR, um, one of the legislators actually stood up and said something, I believe it was her, um, her nephews, like the oldest nephew had a very severe reaction to um, an immunization, was harmed by it. And so now the siblings have medical exemptions. And she thought this was wonderful and that we needed to remove the personal exemption because the medical exemption, exemption she said, were there for those who needed it. And, and you know, I'm up in the gallery as a <clears throat> citizen and I wanted to stand up and say, <clears throat> um, I don't know where my voice just went. <clears throat> I wanted to stand up and say, you're telling us we have to sacrifice our firstborn. <clears throat> <laughs> so... <clears throat> If our firstborn is harmed by future products, then we can get a medical exemption. And that's just absolutely absurd. That, that, but that's what she believed, that everybody should get them. And then after that, you know, I mean, you took one for the gipper. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, they've been ministering these vaccines for a very long time. And um Alrighty, sirs. Yeah. So, and so um, the, the, the VAC, the VAC, went on to then update on COVID shot information. So mm -hmm. on slide two, if you have that uh, COVID okay. shot updates, they I thought they had some some interesting comments. Yeah, about... I'm just going to kind of click through and see if I can figure out which each of these are. I apologize if they're showing, they're probably showing up in order, but all I see is, is our dear Nathan's name on the... Um, Addressing public concerns. Oops, sorry, that was that again. Hold on. Let me do this. 
Is this it? Um, the first was the RSV vaccine. Nope, we already did that one. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to remove that so I, oops, it won't let me remove so that I don't keep pulling that one up. Okay, I'm going to pull Well, at any rate. Persons. Oh, it just, that's the same one. Um, I, I also wanted to, you said something important, Bob, and I skimmed over it. It's very important. Unless the um, public health begins to acknowledge that vaccines can induce allergies, food allergies, um, all sorts of allergies, um, they're going to continue to have ridiculous recommendations, you know, they're, they're not following up to see They're so far. We'll see if they end up getting, um, we know that in 1913, Charles Bechet won a Nobel prize for coining the term anaphylaxis. The term anaphylaxis did not exist until the hypodermic needle was invented and they began injecting people. And they saw that a certain percentage of the population would become hypersensitive to whatever was in the needle. Um, human immune system reactions have not changed since 1913. It is still the case that a certain, um, uh, oh, thank you. Nathan has now labeled our clips. Yay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah. So, you know, children can be made allergic. And then the other thing is about the ability of aluminum adjuvant and this is now becoming, you're seeing it here and there in, in mainstream. In fact, it was in the recent ACIP meeting that that gal um, is quoting, the aluminum adjuvants can skew your immune system toward the allergic profile. They actually said that in, in the June 13th, not June 13th, ACIP, um, the one that she's referring to, the, or the June meeting that the July, our July meeting was referring to. Okay, Bob, I am now organized per clip. Which clip would you like me to, to play? Right. Well, uh, just verbally, we'll go through the uh, the idea. They're still on updating us on various uh, vaccines from okay. the NCIP. And so just a couple topics and quotes that I can talk to. Okay. Uh, I noticed they talk about COVID vaccines, but they also kind of reluctantly mention and quickly mention that bivalent uptake is very low. Yes. So the uptake is is not going very fast right now on, on that anymore. That was supposed to be the recommended dosing coming into the fall, coming out of the pandemic, going into this fall, bivalent would be the answer. Not highly tested either when they put it out. And they they said the reasoning they believed it was low was because people didn't know it existed. Is that, that was the main thing I heard, wasn't it? Well, gosh, people were yeah. just like, they didn't think they need it. They figured, oh, they could skip this dose or they didn't even know that it was still a thing. You could still get a new booster. It was really interesting. And with a bombardment of advertising, it's kind of hard to think that anybody might not know that, right, <laughs> that there's a booster right. out there. Yeah, what? I didn't what? hear about that vaccine. Yeah. Well, so with low, <laughs> with low uptake, then they go on to mention how uh, the CDC is underway. Plans are underway for routine commercial use. Yes. Yeah, so as it comes, as the emergency ends and the government ceases purchasing these, it's going to go toward um, the more commercialization. So where your um, 
insurance company is purchasing it. You know, it's going to fall how all the other vaccines are gone or are distributed and doled out. And in Washington state, um, it's a universal vaccination um, uh, purchase state for pediatric vaccines. And so the state of Washington purchases all vaccines that um, are on the pediatric schedule and then practitioners can go to them. That way they get the bulk rate, they get the good price from the CDC. Um, and so they're just gonna be incorporated in their normal. Um, I mean, this is, this is the problem with public health, Bob, is the, the CDC and the Department of Health, they're in the business of purchasing, storing, distributing, promoting, mandating the shots. And, and at the federal level, defending against um, accusations of harm. <laughs> so, and, and being responsible for the testing and quality. Exactly. But they don't do any of the testing and quality, not until like, I mean, how many years have, have vaccines been given to children with the schedule growing and growing and growing? And they keep saying it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. Don't veer from the schedule. Don't veer from the schedule. And it's only been like, this meeting that we're talking about today, we're going to get to the fact that finally now they're beginning to look at um, possible adverse reactions to exposure to the full schedule right. in 2023. <laughs> right. After everybody's been promised, oh no, you have to stick to the schedule. You have to leave my office if you don't stick to the schedule. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that brings up clip two. Oh, clip two. Yay. All right. The first one is antigens, the non-targeted infections. Okay, gonna, okay, let me pause for a second. So, yeah, okay, yeah. So we're going to be listening to Heidi Kelly of the Department of Health talk about uh, studies in the vaccine safety data link. Um, I'm going to see what it includes, and then um, there's some sources I have. Okay, here we go. Addressing public concerns. Um, first one is antigens, the non-targeted infections. So was there association between the two? Um, and overall uh, public concerns over vaccines overloading immune systems, and they did not find an association during this review of data. Uh, the next was, do the schedules, can the schedules increase the likelihood of type one diabetes, um, which overall um, addresses the public concerns for over, uh, over possibility of vaccine causing autoimmune disorders and found the vaccine schedule is not associated with increased risk of type one diabetes. Did see a decrease in um, asthma in this one, uh, but needs more studies to verify. Then finally, there was a study done between the link between aluminum and uh, asthma, which addressed the concerns of possibility of vaccines causing increased risk of allergic disorders such as asthma and eczema. Um, there were some small associations, although, the, although um, there was large limitations noted in the study, such as lack of data on dietary and environmental exposures, such as um, secondhand smoke and um, uh, asthma being in the family and such. So um, definitely options. This is just the beginning. Um, they've got some study subjects to further review. Next slide. That was it there. Then finally, oh, they no, pulled okay. in the Danish study that was conducted. Dr. Habib provided the presentation. Um, the study conducted looked at over 500,000 um, mm -hmm. records 
uh, kiddos that receive um, vaccine. And this is relevant because their childhood immunization schedule is very similar to ours. So they reviewed and looked at the amount of aluminum in the vaccines and then followed these patients over time and did not find any support for association between aluminum and vaccines and asthma, um, the diagnosis of asthma by age five. Next slide. Next slide. So that's it. Okay, so th there's just a whole lot here. And let me see if I can remember how to and she do does that. over the results pretty quickly there and uh, in a way gloss over them. And yeah, um, okay, a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to go backwards. The Havid study, which we haven't seen, the full study hasn't been published yet. We got preliminary data at that ACIP meeting. And that's the Danish study. The Danish study, yes. Um, they they actually have a really good database because it's like socialized medicine. So they have access to a lot of really good data. But there's so few out of like 440,000, I've got the numbers here somewhere, is doing some math, 464,710 children, only 5,799 had not been vaccinated at all. So they... The, they have a majority vaccinated population. But to say their schedule is similar to ours is not really, I wish I had that pulled up, but I don't. Um, it, it's it's lighter than ours. The I don't see a birth dose. I saw three month is the first dose, not two month, but three month. They give fewer vaccines earlier in life. Um, I would love an, somebody who's really, really good at analyzing studies to look at what was done, um, and the factors they used and the adjustments they use, that's not my strength. Um, but I, I was not relieved at all by what I saw based on uh, what was there. So I'm just going to leave it at that. But both at uh, the VAC meeting and also the ACIP meeting she's referring to, it was stressed that the only reason... Um, all of these studies were being done is parental concern. The ACIP meeting said very strongly um, there was there wasn't any problems out there that anybody was seeing, but parents was were concerned about too many vaccines being given um, in too short a time, and so that's why we did these studies. So I want to. You know, this is why individuals need to not read the marketing messaging, which that is, and actually always go read your primary, um, the the primary data here. So let me make this let me make this bigger. Um, what I'm showing you here is what was referred to in that meeting and at the ACIP meeting, and this is the. Uh, adverse effects of vaccines, evidence and causality. It was the Institute of Medicine study that is everybody's referring to here. Um, and they, they were created by the 1986 act that they were supposed to review. And it said that the, the IOM has addressed 11 times in the past, 20, um, in the past 25 years. Uh, let's see. They, they go over everything. There's something really important here. I wanted to highlight, um, 
The Institute of Medicine was charged by Congress when it enacted the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act in 1986 with reviewing the literature regarding the adverse events associated with vaccines covered by the program, a charge which the IOM has addressed 11 times in the past. Following in this tradition, the task of this committee in about the year 2013, it might have started in 11, um, dispassionately um, was, was to assess dispassionately the scientific evidence about whether eight different vaccines cause adverse events, AEs, a total of 158 vaccine AE pairs, the largest study undertaken to date and the first comprehensive review since 1994. So then we go down to say, um, this is, all of it is very interesting to read. I read all 800 pages of this several years ago with Dr. James Lyons-Weiler. We, we yeah. analyzed it very thoroughly. I haven't looked at it really closely in recently. Um, but there's something here really important I want to make sure I say that I read. Although the, this is part of their preface, although the committee is optimistic that more can and will be known about vaccine safety in the future, the limitations of the currently available peer reviewed data meant that more often than not, we did not have sufficient scientific information to conclude whether a particular vaccine caused a specific rare adverse event where the data were inadequate to reach a scientifically defensible conclusion about causation, the committee specifically chose not to say which way the evidence leaned, reasoning that such indications would violate our analytic framework. Some readers doubtless will be disappointed by this level of rigor. The committee particularly counsels readers not to interpret a conclusion of inadequate data to accept or reject causation as evidence either that causation is either present or absent. Inadequate data to accept or reject causation means just that, inadequate. It is also important to recognize what our task was not. We were not charged with assessing the benefits of vaccines, with weighing benefits and costs, or with deciding how, when, and to whom vaccines should be administered. The committee was not charged with making vaccine policy. We did receive calls to stride into this contentious debate, but others such as the FDA and the CDC are tasked with formulating recommendations for use that balance the risk of vaccines with the benefits with studying the safety of the vaccines during pre-release trials and monitoring closely once the vaccine is in the population. Our work could not have been accomplished and then they go on to thank who they accomplished. So you can see, Bob, that that is what their work was all about. And um, the Informed Consent Action Network engaged very closely, I'm going to stop this for a bit, with the, um, IO, the National Institutes of Health regarding this paper, because even though the Washington VAC and the ACIP have both said that that study concluded that overall vaccines are safe and the schedule is safe, the IOM never said such a thing. They did not say that. Out of those 150 some vaccine adverse event uh, that they were tasked with researching about, I can't remember the number, it's somewhere around 135 
there was inadequate data, inadequate data on 130 some, right? And now here it is 2023, Bob, and they're just now beginning to look at the things in 2013 that the IOM said, we don't know. There's inadequate data. So again, that's one of the things we've got marketing messages that do not match. And all you have to, that's one of the things that most infuriated me when Dr. James Lyons Weiler said, hey, Bernadette, I want you to review this as a mom, as a you know, citizen activist, as a researcher, you know, self-taught and tell me what you think. And one of the first things I noticed is, is, and I said, Jack, which is, a, you know, everybody calls him Jack, is like the CDC says that this massive review says that the overall, the schedule is safe and effective. I said, but I didn't find that anywhere in the, in the um, 800 pages. And he's like, bingo. <laughs> you know, so um, it's, it's so infuriating. And, and, you know, and again, my memory isn't perfect on all of the things there because it's been a while, several years since I reviewed it. But so then one more thing, though, Bob, I want to share that's really important because what Heidi at the DOH is saying is now these studies are being done. And I want to show you now because um, she mentioned she mentioned the white paper that was done. Let's see, I'm going to go ahead and scroll to the top of you and let's see let me pull that in she mentioned this paper the white paper and studying the safety of the childhood immunization schedule and this is where the i hate to use the word misinformation but let's you know how what's it called bob when somebody makes a mistake or writes something inaccurately and because people don't go all the way down the rabbit hole they're just reading the surface they, they're repeating the error there, there's probably a word for that. It's yeah, error repetition. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. So remember how I read to you why the IOM studied all of those 150 some adverse reactions and they did so because they're tasked to do so and they take it very seriously and they try to do it in an unbiased way. Um, this white paper on studying the safety of the childhood immunization schedule, which I will now. Um, yeah, it's called error, error propagation. Error propagation. This is where it begins because they say, and I'll go back to, let's see. Um, they say in their summary here, routine vaccination in the United States is widely viewed as one of the greatest public health achievements in the past century. Despite this success, an increasing number of parents have been expressing concerns about vaccine safety over the last two decades. Parental vaccine worries have traditionally focused on specific vaccines, ingredients, and types of adverse events. More recently, parents have been voicing concerns about the safety of the recommended immunization schedule as a whole, with opinions that children receive too many vaccines at too young of an age, and that early childhood immunization overwhelms the immune system. These sentiments reflect the number frequency and timing of recommended vaccines, leading some parents to refuse or delay vaccinations for their children. In response to these concerns, the Institute of Medicine in 2012 convened a committee to gather stakeholder input in scientific evidence on the safety of the recommended childhood immunization schedule. Okay, that right there is false information. The IOM 
stated they convened the committee because they're tasked by law to convene this, convene this committee. This is their job. They didn't do it because parents were concerned. They mm -hmm. did it because it's their job. And 150 some adverse events following vaccination when exposed to the whole schedule had been reported to them. Right. So, I was going to mention that too. Um, the things they looked at. Uh, yes. Yeah. So those, the asthma and uh, right. any of the autoimmune diseases, including the diabetes, that is on the vaccine insert as a reasonable outcome, a reasonable yeah. adverse event. Right. So I wanted to show, let's see, where was it? Um, I was looking for the word plausible because it's really important. Plausible. So when they, when with this, what this paper was doing was looking, how can we do study designs that will help us see if the whole schedule is safe. And at the time I was reading it and looking very closely, I had serious concerns about the study designs they were suggesting because it seemed as if they were not going to be able to really uh, noodle out the truth, as it were, because of how they wanted to design these studies. But, you know, and I'm an amateur out there, but Dr. James Lenzweiler designed studies and he was in agreement. So anyway, it says that for each outcome, the study team summarized and reviewed available evidence related to biological and mechanistic plausibility and appropriateness of evaluating the adverse event in the context of the childhood immunization schedule. To determine biological plausibility, the study team assessed existing evidence of potential associations between specific aspects of the immunization schedule and particular adverse health outcomes. So what they studied had biological plausibility, okay? So here, Bob, what we're seeing is a list of 75 outcomes that they identified for evaluation. These are ones that they felt by looking at the VSD, the vaccine safety data link, which includes like eight hospital systems, that there was data in there that would allow them to look at these 75 outcomes. 47 bolded outcomes were initially considered plausible to study relative to the childhood immunization schedule. Why that sentence is important, because if it's not bolded, it doesn't mean that it's not a vaccine reaction they thought was plausible. It meant that it, usually what it meant, it was a, a reaction that was specific to one shot, as opposed to exposure to the full schedule, right? To multiple shots given at two months, four months, six months, all the way up, okay? So I'm going to read, you know, our radio and podcast listeners here. This list is long. I Maybe I'll just go ahead and read the bolded ones because it's important. It's a lot to read here. Here we go. Oh, Bob, can you read it? Do you want to read it? So I'm not doing all the, the talking. Oh, it's too small. Uh, Let me make it bigger. I'll make it bigger and then we can hear your nice uh, voice here instead of me rattling on. Yes, I'll use my radio voice. Yeah. Can you, can you see that now? Or is it still too small? Yes. Yeah. And the bolded ones uh, include all-cause morbidity, all-cause mortality, allergy development, asthma development, one of their focuses of the recent review, mm -hmm. anaphylaxis, chronic urticaria, urticaria. Um, these are in the allergy ca category, and more asthma exacerbation, uh, autoimmune diseases like Crohn's, Kawasaki's. Here we go. Type 1 diabetes, 
autoimmune hepatitis, psoriatic arthritis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, this is all good stuff too. Uh, systemic lupus erythematosus, multiple sclerosis, even multiple sclerosis. Amazing. Yeah. Autoimmune thyroiditis, autoimmune thyroiditis. For, that was Hashimoto's and Graves. Yes. Hashimoto's and Graves disease and rheumatoid arthritis, RA. Mm-hmm. Other bolded items, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, myelitis, myelitis, now, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. You can see why I asked you to read it. <laughs> first, first demyelinating event, yeah. so this is all in the demyelinating, which means it's neurological disorders. Yes. And from what I've read in the past, it basically is like taking a, of a nerve cord it's, it's taking the sheath off of the nerve cord and then like, it doesn't have its normal protections in place yeah. in the body and probably just stops working. Uh, optic neuritis, transverse myelitis, which is very close to the result of, um, of polio. Mm -hmm. uh, then into the seizure area, epilepsy, infantile spasms, afibril seizures, fibril seizures, and other seizures. Neurological symptoms, the list is really long. We probably don't want to get at all of them. Bell's palsy is in there. No. Okay. Let's let's start though with neurological system because the first one under there is autism spectrum disorders, which is bolded. Yep. <laughs> Biological plausibility, Bob. Yep. Understood. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Uh, I do have a t-shirt that says Andy Wakefield was right. Yes. Uh, encephalitis, encephalopathy, encephalopathy. That oh, one's boy. interesting because that is how autism cases actually get compensation through the vaccine court if yes. they can show brain damage that's what that yes. is yeah oh what happened it went away let me try again yeah we well go. we're time i think we're time for break oh it's time to break it's the top of the hour good heavens um thank you so much i was just i wasn't paying any attention so uh thank you so much quick break and then we'll get back to it If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. 
Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. We need a revolution. Hello and we're back. It's Bernadette and Bob and we are here talking about the the July 13th vaccine advisory committee that happened out in Washington state because you know we we're trying to get some good information out there. I wish we could actually do this in the form of dialogue, um, respectful dialogue, um, but you know, what can you say? Um, this is this is what we got, Bob. Um, I want to, before we move on, uh, in the last hour, we left off looking at kind of the history here. 2013, the IOM, which is tasked by law to review adverse reactions being reported, they found more than 150 um, vaccine adverse events, serious ones that had been reported over the years. They analyzed the literature and they found for 130, some of them, that there was not enough information to say one way or another whether or not these were causally related um, to the shot. But, you know, the FDA only requires you to put on your vaccine insert serious adverse events for which there is biological plausibility. And then uh, we know with the 2015 white paper that was done, and on that was Edgar Marcuse, who we're going to be talking about. He was one of the subject matter experts on that. Um, They were looking at, at all of these. And so here we are 10 years later, 2023, and we're just beginning to hear of studies looking at the full schedule. And I'm very concerned about study design. So real quick, Bob, I want to show you the three uh, uh, or two of the studies and one I'll just briefly mention because I've talked about it before. Um, So one is the, let me go here and pull it in. Let's see, this one is um, the association between estimated cumulative vaccine antigen exposure through the first 23 months of life and non-vaccine targeted infections from 24 through 47 months of age. These were the usual people from Kaiser Permanente and CDC and um, you know that glance individual is on there. Uh, as well. And, you know, they concluded that there was nothing to see here. But um, this is an antigen study, which is very concerning. This wasn't a vax versus unvax study. This was children who got one level of antigens in their vaccines, um, compared to children who got other levels of antigens in their vaccines. And it's tobacco science, because it's basically... um, it's like saying the level of tar in the vaccine, you know, both groups had cancer, therefore 
you know, tar isn't related, but you know, what they're saying is the level of antigens was not related to increase um, susceptibility to other infections. Uh, so I don't, I don't feel confident in any study design that does not have a control group, a non-vaccinated control group. All of the independent studies um, that have, that looked at fully non-vaccinated versus partially vaccinated versus fully vaccinated, like uh, Dr. Thomas's stuff. Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say stuff, but you know, the wonderful study of all the kids in his practice, and there have been several other really good, strong independent studies have really shown that there is a massive difference between being no vaccine exposure just comparing the levels of exposure doesn't do it because there's so many factors, Bob, there's individual susceptibility, right? And there's the, the level of aluminum, the level of whatever in there, there's just so many moving parts, but to say that we looked at the antigens and it looked the same, no matter how much antigen you're exposed to, therefore um, all these vaccines are safe. That's not, that's like a logical fallacy, right? It, it's that's not how that's not how it works. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna share um, another one that they did share screen, and it was similar, I believe. Um, it was the uh, cumulative. Okay, so the next one is um, add to stream. Hold on, let me pull it up. There we go. Uh, the childhood vaccination schedule and the lack of association with type one diabetes. Um, this one used, Bob, some of the language that I found very concerning that emerged in that white paper and the study designs they were coming up with. I would love to see somebody who's really good at analyzing studies who, who really understand it to look closely at this but they have group, there's like no non-exposed control group, but they use this uh, three measures of the immunization schedule were assessed. Average days under vaccinated, ADU, a whole category, Bob, under vaccinated, cumulative antigen exposure and cumulative aluminum exposure. So they compared all those categories and I don't know what you could possibly make out of. And, you know, if you were under vaccinated for two days, which was like, you know, you were due according to the schedule, they considered that under vaccinated. It's, it made no scientific biological sense to me. And I'm not a scientist. I fully admit it, but I, very concerning. So this is what people have to go down the rabbit hole and really look at. And we've got glance again on this. And then we've got Frank Stefano. and Frank Stefano was the lead author. Also, I, I believe the way you do it, the, the lead author is always the last name this was always my understanding. He was the lead author on the uh, vaccine autism study. That's the focus of the whistleblower and vaxxed um, documentary film where um, they threw out the data that showed that if administered before the age of three, the risk of autism, um, if MMR administered before the age of three, the risk of autism drastically increases. So these are very concerning. And then the third study that was mentioned at the VAC meeting was the study where 
no matter how much they manipulated the data, they could not get rid of the association between persistent asthma and aluminum exposure. So it was there, but then they cited um, the Habib study, which is in um, Denmark. Um, and uh, Denmark does not have, even though she said they had a, a similar vaccination schedule, they actually, it's quite a bit less than what we have. And I saw in the schedule, I didn't see a birth dose. I saw a three month dose. Um, so again, without spending too much time on it, you know, I, it didn't. Well, that would like be, yeah, that would be a completely different aluminum dosage then or aluminum yeah. exposure because. Right. And they were, they were looking at the various levels of exposure, but both studies, the authors in both said that because they were looking at asthma, um, evidence of asthma up to age five. And they said they really couldn't at that age really distinguish true asthma so much from maybe other things that were going on. And one of them even suggested um, reaction to pertussis could cause wheezing to the pertussis vaccine. Maybe they were seeing a viral reaction as opposed to an aluminum adjuvant reaction. So there's just an awful lot there. Um, and it's very concerning that they're, they're just now doing these studies after they've been telling parents, you must stick to the schedule. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm ready to move on. We've got some really good things to cover. So what is next, Bob, on our list? Yeah, well, speaking of sticking to the schedule, I think that, uh, well, at the end of the ACIP updates that Heidi gave, there was a general question uh, basically relayed from the CDC or ACIP members to ask various departments of health what they're hearing uh, from their constituents, their practitioners, uh, their members, the people that all those vaccine advisory committee representatives represent. What are the representatives, uh, mm -hmm. what are the members, I should say, saying about uh, any, any concerns specifically with the RSV? with the newly approved yes. or newly recommended RSV vaccines. And so a question was asked, are people hearing things? What are they hearing? Mm -hmm. And so uh, if we play clip three. Clip three. All right, here we go. Any of the other like, clinicians or healthcare system colleagues hearing anything or have any concerns? What I've heard, this is John. What what I've heard, uh, at, even though uh, ours is <clears throat> ours is uh, clinicians rather than pharmacists, it it reflects a little bit what uh, Jenny Arnold said earlier. The uh, it, the interesting. I just want to say real quick, Jenny Arnold, the pharmacist, had said that pharmacists are saying, yeah, I know we can do this. They, they said we can give RSV, COVID shot, and flu shot all at once, but should we? That's what she brought up. They said, we know we can, but should we? Which is interesting. Right, yeah. I have the quote been. right here. Oh, sorry. Oh. I have the quote right here. I can read Jenny Arnold's. Okay. It's, uh, I have heard some questions. Are we actually going to administer three adjuvanted vaccines at once to elderly patients in particular? Is that okay? Is it steady? You know their arms are going to feel like they're going to fall off. So while we can do it, should we do it? That's what she's hearing, right? Okay, now we'll go on with Dr. John Dunn. The uh, it, the interesting thing, there's always been, uh, or not always been, but there's increasingly been uh, concerns raised in the community about this sort of thing. Um, 
I, I really am getting uh, getting questions that come increasingly from uh, from clinicians and colleagues uh, about about whether this is appropriate, how broad it should be, whether uh, and uh, and what studies have been done, what what happened. Uh, an interesting byproduct of uh, of the last few years with COVID is the the general level of knowledge. <clears throat> of how recommendations are made, where they come from, and sort of what impact they it, they have is much greater than it used to be. I've found with I've found hand in hand with that um, an increased an increasing uh, willingness on the part of providers to uh, it, to uh, follow their own path uh, with some of these things that is that is they're not always as likely to uh, it, to follow uh, uh, recommendations that are made broadly or uh, or do this in a uniform way um, unless unless you really have the opportunity to walk people uh, to walk these folks through um, uh, to walk these folks through what we know what's been shown what hasn't what the concerns really are and what the magnitude of those concerns really are um, a, I bring it up only because uh, it, because I think it's going to be an increasing I think it's really going to be an increasing challenge, and in terms of ultimately getting community acceptance of this, uh, if you figure that the best salesperson for any given thing is someone who truly believes in the product and believes in the regimen, um, we need to get our own folks on board first. Okay, I so love that. So Dr. John Dunn, if you if you ever get to watch this, I want to say that, you know, amen. COVID-19 has woken up your colleagues. I wish it would wake you up, sir, with all due respect. It has woken up your colleagues to the fact that when recommendations come down, there may not yet be adequate safety information to support the recommendation. And we need our doctors putting their patients first you know, the uh, first do no harm. And um, even the, uh, the former chief science officer in Washington state ha had said to me in the past, Bernadette, policies are set at the population level and doctors are supposed to vaccinate at the individual level. And I said, Kathy, it was Kathy Lofi. I said, but the problem is, is the Department of Health is educating and pushing public health level recommendations on doctors with scripts to try to coerce each individual to accept it. But the beauty of COVID, Bob, is <clears throat> doctors, very busy doctors, have now <clears throat> been awakened to the fact that when these recommendations come down, they're not yet backed. I just find that so astounding. And yet, yeah. Dr. Dunn continued to go on to say, um, as if this is a bad thing, and right. now we're going to have to talk them into it. And why does he think it's a good thing to give all three at once, that we're going to have to do the sales pitch? No. <laughs> you know, first do no harm. Um, what else you got? How about some vitamin D? How about some ivermectin? How about, you know, whatever? Let's, yeah, let's that's do some amazing. real healing. <laughs> if, if we, I've said this in multiple forums, but if these things are so good, they should sell themselves. They should sell themselves. Exactly. And this all or nothing has got to stop. If you want trust in public health back, Dr. Dunn and, and ASIP and DOH and everybody, you can, it can't be so black or white. 
you know, with it. It can't be everybody has to uh, take them up and believe them 100%, no matter what. I mean, we've got to start having these real dialogues or you're going to just turn the entire planet into anti-vaxxers. We are on our way because of this sort of um, uh, pressure to vaccinate in the absence of safety data. So let's but, listen but I, to some more. Yeah, okay. but, I, but I will thank John Dunn for being what appears to be honest and even bringing this topic up yes. in the forum. Yes. Uh, I, I, this is almost dissent from the ranks of their previous meetings and what they've been allowed to say maybe, or what they do say. And I will well, say it does I, seem that he's a little bit uncomfortable on the topic. We probably yeah. could have captured what he said in three sentences, but he took about a minute, you know, two and a half minutes to say all that. Right. <laughs> Choosing, trying to choose his words carefully. That's, I think that's so. for that's sure. Like. Yeah. Knowing that Bernadette is watching, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and maybe a few other people. So. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Any of the other like, clinicians or healthcare system colleagues hearing anything or have any concerns? What I've heard, this is John, what, it, what I've heard, I uh, oh, did it even start though, over? Uh, yeah, this is the same one. We need to go to Clark Oh, clip four. The next clip, but let's. I'd like to reiterate for the audience too. They this is in reference, and maybe you did this, Burnett, but I'll say it again. This is in reference to three shots at once. This is their defense for the triple demic, and and that's the concern. The, last fall, they talked about the triple demic of RSV, flu, and COVID happening in humans all at the same time, mm -hmm. and therefore we need to watch out for that. This year, they actually have a product, the RSV vaccines. So they now can fight all three at once. And I believe that's what this question is about, about co-administration yeah. of three vaccines in the elderly population for this fall. And the, the RSV, go watch those meetings. It does not prevent infection transmission. And people got sick and, you know, and elderly people died in the clinical trial from RSV because it does not work. And it wanes very, very rapidly. So is Edgar Marcuse clip four? Yes. Okay. So we're going to go on then to this. To the next uh, agenda item, uh, Ed. As a member of the high risk group and a resident of a long term care facility, I, I think it's important that we recognize how prevalent vaccine hesitancy is among the target population. Um, I, I don't, I have not seen uh, some of the information that would make me enthusiastic about simultaneous immunization with these three agents. Um, it's not clear to me which of the three diseases poses the greatest risk. It's probably COVID, but I don't know that. It's not clear to me what the relative timing of the three diseases will be and whether that should influence how we proceed. I don't understand the relative risk of side effects among the three vaccines. And I think it, it cautioned, um, I, I'm very reluctant to see a, a, a vaccine enthusiast recommendation for all three vaccines in a short period of time without uh, data to back that up. I, I, uh, underlying trust of this high-risk population is very tenuous. Thank you. Amen. Thanks, Ed, for sharing that perspective. Uh, somebody 
yeah. the next uh, agenda item. Hold on. Uh, Ed. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry, I let that go too long. Yeah, but... no, you're you're good. I'm just um, sometimes not very coordinated with what I'm doing. That's <laughs> it's my That's fault. Problem, so... but, but there's a lot there also. Another comment that was. Let me tell more honesty than I've ever heard coming out of these committees. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why we attend. I want to show people who Edgar Marcuse is and why this is so very important, who this gentleman is. Edgar Marcuse is Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington. He has served as a member and chair of the U.S. National Vaccine Advisory Committee, a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Diseases, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is ACIP, and the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, VRBAC. So this, um, you know, when, when Dr. Edgar Marcuse speaks, and he was also subject matter expert on that white paper we looked at to analyze the full schedule, he and Dr. Stanley Plotkin and Keenan Vaccines were subject matter experts on that. So when he says that he advises caution and there, there are, isn't safety data to say on administering, he didn't even say at the same time, he said within a relatively short time of each other. So, you know, what does that mean? Um, and he is in that target population, somebody living in assisted care who, you know, is um, up there in age. And, you know, and so I applaud you, Dr. McHugh, if you ever do watch this. Now, I have spoken with him over the years in person, and he is a, um, a physician, a doctor who is vaccine risk aware to a certain degree, but vehemently believes the benefits outweigh the risks. Years ago, he did publish in the Seattle Times of all places with two other doctors, a paper about the ethics of vaccine mandates. And he said, based on the severity of disease and the ability of the vaccine products, the only vaccine that he felt rose to the ethical standards of mandating was the measles vaccine. So he's really an interesting individual that I, you know, dear sir, if you're listening, I find you very frustrating because I know you understand these things and I applaud you for bringing this up. But um, yeah, um, this is what we get when we watch. So Bob, you though, MMR, read that MMWR that you found. Do you have that handy? So um, when they're when they're talking about um, administering this vaccine, this is uh, the CDC um, being honest about what they said. I don't think I have that pulled up. Do you have that handy? I'll get him to look for that. Um, and then we're gonna we're gonna be moving on. There a couple of let's see what time we're doing. A um, couple other big topics was talking about vaccine exemptions that we're gonna be getting to, and. Um, do you want me to? Oh, you're mute for some reason, Bob. I lost you. So it's okay. You know, if we can't I'm find, back. are you back? If you can't find it quickly, I've got that's a few windows open here. But please uh, let me try now. Okay. Overcome the background noise in my in my neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the study, the the MMWR, the monthly mor morbidity report. 
from uh, oh, the, the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report from the CDC. Yes. And they put out uh, articles almost weekly, and, and it ends up in a large volume on the shelf somewhere. But just this last week, they're finally catching up to the ACIP meeting and recording what those recommendations were for the RSV vaccination. And they've got a section in here on co-administration. So vaccine co-administration, vaccine administration, including co-administration with other vaccines. Co-administration of RSV vaccines with other adult vaccines, i.e. flu, i.e. COVID, during the same visit is acceptable. Co-administration, same visit, is acceptable. Five asterisks. Five asterisks, okay. What do the five asterisks say? When administering more than one vaccine at the same clinical visit, providers should separate injection sites by at least one inch, if possible. <laughs> and consider administering vaccines that are associated with an enhanced local reaction in separate limbs. So be, be a very spaced out, uh, as if we're Barbie dolls and you can just, if you just vaccinate one arm, it's not going to impact and, and it cause any sort of, if your immune reaction over here and the immune reaction over here, they're never going to intertwine. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and like and so, so that's all hinted at that. It's just injection site reactions that they're concerned yeah. about. And then they go on available data on immunogenicity of co-administration of RSV vaccines and other vaccines is currently limited. So go ahead and give the three shots, even though the data is limited. Co-administration of RSV and seasonal flu vaccines met non-inferiority criteria for immunogenicity. That's just whether or not it triggered antibodies. Yeah. Mm. Non-inferiority means it just wasn't worse than what they compared it to. Yes. Um, so at least as good, perhaps, is another way to look at that. And then there was, uh, with the exception of a flu vaccine and RSV from GlaxoSmithKline, and that, I guess, had some issues. So they looks like they might have one exception where they do not recommend flu a Darwin with the GSK RSV vaccines because they're both adjuvanted, quadrivalent, and, and so forth. I'm just paraphrasing what I'm reading here, but the study is available on the CDC. Mm-hmm. So they do go on to say they just don't have any data quite yet. And I think the point I'd like to bring up for the audience is that you are going to be part of the, the stage four post-marketing data gathering. You're part of the experiment in this as you're going to take three vaccines. I don't know, and this is for 60 and over, I don't know that doctors will be explaining that part, that the data is limited. No, and you know, uh, to the Department of Health in Washington, in Tennessee, everywhere, if if you could please just begin being honest. A lot of people love vaccines. A lot of people don't want to change their diet, get exercise, take supplements, you know, and do alternatives to whatever. A lot of people want to just believe that a vaccine's safe. But you need to give them full information so they can make informed decisions. Be honest. And if people want to take place in these clinical trials, I believe in medical freedom. I do not believe in duping consumers. So if you're going to, if, if information's going to go out there, 
full information of the status needs to be known. And I'm so glad to hear that Dr. Dunn is hearing from his colleagues that they're more and more aware of the actual knowledge base of some of the recommendations going on and they're making independent decisions. Amen. Gift of COVID, it's woken up that community, right? Um, fully informed consent is a human right. So yeah, I um, thought it was also amazing how uh, Ed Marcuse did get into the vaccine hesitancy amongst that age group. It must be uh, weariness. Yeah. We talked about uh, injection weariness of those who yeah. were scared into the first shot, scared into the, the, the second of the series, and then the booster and then the bivalent and, and all these things just keep being thrown at them. And now yeah. the, the departments of health and the public health the apparatus are, are starting to, with the marketing campaigns for the fall, here we are in July, but they're getting ready the marketing campaign for the fall to remind people with all these other shots that are sitting in the lab to keep those uh, manufacturing lines warm. Let's yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the greed's gonna be their undoing. Absolute overreach and greed, you know. Um, if a hundred years ago, vaccines became a tool in the public health toolbox, not the only tool, but one tool, you know, perhaps used occasionally in ring style fashion during outbreaks for certain diseases that people wanted, if they had just used them prudently and, and didn't undermine natural immunity, didn't, didn't um, refuse to investigate um, you know, healthy natural immunity and supportive ways to make sure people didn't have severe disease. If, if this was a, a, a much more holistic approach to communicable infection, we wouldn't be in this mess we are now. But the only tool in that public health toolbox are the are vaccines. And it's, it's very dangerous. And there's hundreds of them in the pipeline. They're wanting to go, they're aiming more and more, Bob, at at, at diseases with very low fatality rates, um, that with, with vaccine products that are being shown that they don't actually prevent infection or transmission or even prevent hospitalization or death and that wane very quickly. That's the RSV things they've got coming out now at this stage. So um, I'm glad to hear the community is waking up and you know we do need a, a strong public health at, to a certain degree helping um, advise and let people know what the heck is going on. But this collusion with the vaccine industry, this worship of vaccines as if they're the only tool out there, um, especially when they're new like this and when the combinations are untested, yeah. this has got to stop. Yeah. Now, uh, Mr. Marcuse is, I guess, retired out of his positions. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a consultant on the VAC, but you know, he made these comments kind of contrary, actually quite contrary to what the, the front headline from the CDC is in terms of RSV yeah. administration. Do you think there's going to be any blowback? I'm concerned that there may be. You know, the last time that um, anybody publicly said, I caution against getting um, these three shots at one time, I recommend they be spaced out. That was Dr. Andrew Wakefield with the measles, mumps, rubella shot because there wasn't sufficient studies to say that the triple shot was safe. And he recommended parents get the individual shots and space them out. So not in a short period of time. It's very similar. 
probably the difference here is Dr. Edgar Marcuse was speaking in a uh, Washington State VAC meeting, which very few people watch. But Andrew Waitfield made the recommendation at a press conference. And um, then it, but it took six years after he said that his study stood, his study with his 12 co-authors um, uh, with aunt, case study on 12 children, it stood for six years. He spoke to converts, uh, Congress. He did a lot of things that took the industry um, that long to then begin to attack him. But you cannot undermine right now, public health very always says, well, you might not want to give like with the flu shot. Um, you know, if they're in your office and it's August or September, it's really too early to give it to them. But if you don't think they're going to come back to the office, give it to them. It's all about convenience and whether or not you think the person will come back for another jab later on when it, rather than space it out. We hear this argument over um, vaccination of opportunity. If they're in the ER, give it to them. If they're, they come in for anything else, give it to them. Don't miss an opportunity to vaccinate. Um, and that's very concerning because we should do what's in the best interest of the patient, not what is convenient. Um, that's no way to make medical um, decisions um, in this regard. So, all right, let's go on. We're getting low on time, but um, that was really an important one. So everybody know CDC fully admits MMWR that there are no safety studies on the co-administration of these three. Um, and by the way, all three of them, I haven't seen if the RSV vaccine yet is under the umbrella of I don't think it is. You might be able to sue for the eight, for the RSV at this stage because it's only recommended to adults. But the flu vaccine and the COVID shot, if you get injured by those, you can't sue. If you get all three at once, how are you going to be able to untangle what's what? So, okay, on we go. Right. And so at that point, then, the after those comments, and I think that was the, the most notable comment that could be dived into, and, and we did so. They moved on to, into uh, updates for the Washington childhood schedule. Mm -hmm. And and they did bring up uh, some changes that even surprised me. I guess what they did was they merged the pre-K schedule and recommendations inside the Washington Department of Health. Mm -hmm. and, and for our, you know everybody in the state, combined that with the uh, K through 12 schedule. Yes. And so that really drove some changes I did not expect. And so I think we have a slide four. We, if you have we, we, oh, you've got a slide four? Okay. Well, it, me, yeah, I, I, I borrowed it from the, the video. Clip, I, I see clip four, but I don't see slide four. Well, it's not on the, on the website. It's in your email. Sorry. Oh, okay. So my bad. Let me go ahead and I'm going to pull up. I had, where did it? Sorry, where did it go? The um... So there were a couple, if, as you're doing that, I'll just talk through things I noticed to kind okay. of clear this up. But the, the MMR has some new urgency on it. If you want to send your kid to daycare, the DTAP has another, uh, and, and the polio, the, the fourth shot of the polio, fourth or fifth shot of Tdap, and the second shot of MMR. They're all being rushed, I think, at the earliest possible moment compared to the CDC schedule to have all these up to date by the age of four. And they also then bring up in these updates too, uh, polio immunity needs to be tested for anybody who's 18 or above. And I thought that was a bit of a new requirement. Yes, you know, um, we're hearing, you know, we know that the, the 
inactivated polio vaccine um, has been leading to the spread of polio. And now it's gone. Um, it's polio vaccine strain polio that's circulating in some parts mm -hmm. of the world. Uh, and the, the, the type of polio vaccine given in the United States doesn't actually prevent infection. It still allows replication of the polio virus in the in intestinal system. But because we wash our hands and have flushable toilets for the most part, we don't tend to spread it like you do in a country where, you know, you've got open sewers and things like that. But this really is very important. This and, you know, Carl Kanthak, hey, if you're listening, this is really important because we know that one of the ways they um, that is they try to put the fear that vaccine rates are dropping in order to remove exemptions is to look at the vaccination status of children um, at the kindergarten level rather than say first grade or even second grade when a child would be um, seven or older because the CDC's window for getting your second MMR is between the ages of four and six. And that's all the way up to through your sixth year, through your seventh birthday. But the changes that the um, Department of Health now has is that if a child is greater than four years old, um, by September 1st, they are required for school entry to have their second MMR. And what was the other one? Um, it's these, it's, let me, let me make this a little bit bigger. Their fourth, so their fourth polio. Yeah. And the, whatever high number it is for a TDAP. Yeah. So here, I'm going to pull up this TDAP, other, TDAP. share this tab instead. Here we go. Okay, there we go. So the change is that students in preschool or kindergarten, including TK, which is transitional kindergarten, who are four years old or older on September 1st are required to have the additional dose of DTaP, IPV, MMR, and varicella vaccines. Schools do not need to monitor students who turn four during the school year. So if it's just by September 1st. So this is this is lowering the age as far as I can see. And I'm hoping Carl will, you know, because he's our expert guy on all this. This is very concerning. And so if they begin pulling data at another data point, if they're going to be considering parents who do not get their four-year-olds the next doses of these vaccines when they've got the next couple of years of this child's life, according to the CDC schedule to get them, if right, they're going right. to be considering them out of compliance or what it will force them to do, if they don't want to get the shots this early, it will force them to file an exemption. And so it's going to up at this age level, the exemption rate. So it's, it's, it's going to be twofold. It's going to up the out of compliance rate and it will up the exemption rate. Because you cannot go to, you either have to get the shots as required or you file an exemption. Even if you intend to get the vaccine later, you have to have an exemption on file in order to delay. Right. Yeah. So, you know, this, this is, this is very concerning of what they're attempting to do. We know that ultimately the goal of public health departments. I've had toe-to-toe -to -toe discussions with a lot of people within the Department of Health. They do not believe in exemptions. The organizations they belong to do not believe in exemptions. They 
um, would like to get rid of them, but it's the law. So, so far they, you know, they have to stick to the law. Um, the AIM, the Association of Immunization Managers would like to get rid of all medical and religious exemptions. They don't want personal choice. And, um, and Bob, as we have seen, um, with what we reviewed earlier in the program here today, there are no safety studies on the whole schedule that shows that sticking to the schedule is the best thing at the population level or the individual level. So this absurdity of trying to force children to be on a particular schedule, we need to go back to individualized medicine. Even Dr. Gregory Poland, who I hope he gets over his tinnitus that he got from the COVID-19 shot, right? <laughs> um, even he and all his genetic studies shows that there's individual susceptibility to vaccines and we should personalize the schedules, right? This is the sort of common ground that I wish that we could find with public health. So those areas where we have agreement on the science, we can begin to protect um, medical freedom of choice and individuals so they're not subject to a one-size-fits-none schedule. Right, right. And yeah, yeah one-size-fits-all, just you're going to get uh, what they might call acceptable, uh, collateral damage, collateral damage. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a little bit more on the, the level of honest, open communication. The question was asked by, at the VAC, are there any barriers to getting signatures on the certificate of exemption? Yes. And I thought that was another interesting moment, too, that, that, that this is another turn for the Vaccine Advisory Committee to be listening, perhaps, to some of the comments we've made in the past. To some of the comments we made in the past and to if they've been looking at our website, which I've had reference and heard that they some of them have been looking at. So let's what clip is that, Bob? Is so clip? clips five and six address this, I think. OK, let's go ahead and do that. Yeah, uh, the, it, it, this is John. This it, this is a battle, amazingly, that I fight with my own with our own staff here over and over and over again. Um, and and I'm a, at a little bit of a loss to to make a suggestion for exactly what you could be doing differently. I think that the messaging you just gave about that about what the about what's required about what the signature means, what the signature does not mean. I'm going to pause just to say what he's talking about is in Washington state, the law says that in order to get a religious or personal exemption, a parent has to have a risk benefit consultation with a doctor. The, the doctor is not approving of you getting an exemption. They are simply signing either the exemption form or a letter that says, I gave this parent a risk benefit consultation for their child period. And the law says that they face no civil liability for doing so. That's what he's talking about. Um, is perfectly straightforward. Uh, and, and yet I, I have staff here that, that categorically refuse to do this um, to an extent where at one point I told, I told people that, that, look, if you absolutely cannot bring yourself to do this, I, uh, you know, if it's that much of a moral problem for you, I, that's fine. But it's on you to find somebody else in the organization who will who will talk with these parents and sign this form. And you can send them to me if you want. Um, the 
but I, I guess it's it's merely to reinforce your point. This this is not a minor issue. This comes up every single year, and uh, and and it comes up in surprising places. And and it's clear that the people that will sway with our regular messaging, by and large, have been swayed. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, very good. And so then you said uh, stream six too, or clip six, right? And yep, stream six talks about uh, Catherine Graff. We'll get back on and and talk about a suggestion. Okay. Um, I do just I just to let you guys know too. So if you're having these conversations, um, it is also acceptable for um, a healthcare practitioner to. Um, have a letter that says the same information. So they can have a letter saying that they have discussed the benefits and risks of vaccination with the parent. Um, it has to have the child's name, um, you know, birth date, it has to have the, the healthcare practitioner's name, all that stuff. Um, but then the parent can attach that to a COE that they sign um, is, as opposed to having the healthcare practitioner actually sign the COE. So if that, makes it easier for folks um, to have that conversation and provide a letter that might be another option for some. Um, yeah. That's okay. a great idea. With John Dunn finishing mentioning that's a great idea. So he's like your, yeah. your previous conversations with him. Uh, he's open to respecting the law and the option that's available under the law. Under the law. And, and then yeah, and then he went on to say um, that maybe they could set up some sort of system where practitioners who are willing to do these would sign up. And I do believe um, we need to reach out to Dr. Dunn and see if this can be done. Now, we are doing that. Informed Choice Washington does this. If you go to our website, informedchoicewa.org, we have a risk-benefit consultation-free service. And what we do is you... Um, it's every Wednesday. Um, you just sign up for free. We The email that you get gives you a whole bunch of resources that we feel you need to know. Um, is it sort of one-sided? Of course it is, because if you want to hear vaccines praised, do you know where to go? But if you want to hear what you're not being told, the missing information, we provide that. So then you just chat usually with me for a little bit and we talk about your needs and then we have some practitioners in the state who respect the law and and that you know risk benefit consultation is something that is uh your right in the state and um we refer to them then it's up to them how they handle it right but i would love to see um you know, if the state wants to participate in this and or get their own system going to make it easier. Now, uh, Lisa Templeton in her public comment suggested something um, that might be potential legislation where, you know, anybody who is authorized to administer these school vaccines should be authorized to do a risk benefit consultation. If you know enough about the, the six-year-old child enough about vaccines to safely administer them to the child, then surely you know enough to give a risk benefit consultation and they could charge for, for it just like practitioners do. I'm talking going to Safeway, pharmacy. I mean, right? Anywhere you get a back to school vaccine, because right now, Bob, the way it works is if you want a back to school vaccine, you can go down to your local grocery store that has a pharmacy and get it for your child. But if you want a risk benefit consultation, 
you have to make the appointment. If you're working, you have to take the time off work to get there, take your child out of school or whatever they're doing. It, it's a hassle. And then you have to pay the doctor whatever their fee is to, uh, to do this. And so the burden is out of balance here. And so if really what they just want is the risk benefit um, consultation, then um, that should um, be able to it should be able to do that at any time. And yes, um, I think we're done with the, um, let's see, hold on. Okay. Um, and, and, oh, I, and, and how do those people, how do our listeners get a hold of this service again? Oh, Informed Choice Washington? Yeah. Yeah. So informedchoicewa.org. I think it's right there. Let me look and see. Um, on the about, about mm -hmm. on the about tab, if you drop down, it says vaccine risk benefit class and practitioner referral. So yeah, so there right. it so, is. And, yeah, you and, can... and you mentioned in the setting, say the, the grocery store to get caught up on your vaccines that, well, the schedule is pretty complex. Mm -hmm. It's not like the technicians that might be doing this are, uh, you know, completely uneducated. These are complex yeah. schedules. The, all the nuances with, you know, which cap COVID vaccine they have to pick and how they pre-mix it and how they thaw it and how they uh, will apply it and administer it. It's a fairly complex set of, of needs and other vaccines are at least as complicated as what yeah. COVID is doing now. So it, it's not like they couldn't give a risk benefit discussion. Well, anytime you go get a prescription of any sort, if it's the first time that you've had it, they always ask you, is this the first time you've had this prescription filled? And if you say yes, they say, well, step over here to our counter and the pharmacist is going to talk with you. And the pharmacist then will give you kind of a, usually it's it's the risk. Make sure you don't eat this with this or, or make sure you have food with it. Um, you know, it's contraindicated with something else here. They just make sure that, that you know enough before you step away to take that safely. So anything that a, a, a pharmacist sells and administers, they should know enough to be able to give you the risk benefit. Um, um, you know, so yeah, I, I be, think, yeah. That would, be a, that would be an interesting legislative piece. Yeah, I, I would love to see uh, vaccines become administration become personalized. And I would love to see the VAC, since they are tasked at looking at other medicines, other drugs, other approaches to infectious disease. We need this conversation widened. We need um, uh, healthcare, public health to include more than just the injection of pharmaceuticals. And I've said this to them before, Bob, when I was once on that tag, um, there was a, um, it, uh, Dr. Pendergrass was leading um, the whole tag and he started out saying, if you believe in, in children's health and, and I do, and if you believe in vaccines and I do, then we need to make sure children stay healthy and, and they get these vaccines. And then I raised my hand and pushed my little button, <laughs> got to speak and just say that, you know, of, each vaccine is only designed to prevent either infection or reduce the symptoms of infection if it isn't capable of preventing infection. They have nothing to do with health. There's nothing in a vaccine that's a building block of health. 
there so we have got to keep that word health out it's maybe infection symptom attempt to reduce right but this whole idea that you need them for health and in fact you know when the studies are showing more and more the independent studies that the more of these things you get the more skewed your immune system is the more difficulty that you have um of mounting a proper response yeah yeah there there's just it, it's very very complicated and this simplistic approach to we can't say anything critical of vaccines um COVID has shown we can't go that way anymore. I mean, they, they've got to start having these honest conversations. Or, and I or, yeah, mm -hmm. being snarky back to some comments, boy, you don't want those doctors going their own way now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we, we really do. We really do. And, you know, um, as much as we really disagree on these products and how they're being used, you know, when, when you interact with the individuals in person and you see them as humans and you don't demonize, we all want the same thing. We want healthy society. We want healthy kids. You know, we need to find, I, I sound like a broken record. We need to find that common ground. We need to begin having that honest discussion. Public health has got to find a way to include real risk information to convey the experimental nature of many shots that exist out there. So people understand they're becoming part of clinical trial if they're accepting this. It can't go from, we don't have any data on that at the ACIP meeting to the signs up at the Safeway or the Walgreens saying, safe and effective, come get it now, right? I mean, there's got to be some in between. And Bob, we're down to our last minute here. Um, Thank you for today. This this was a lot, and I you prepared a lot, and I so appreciate the prep work that you did to cover this. I want to thank the Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, I tried to be respectful. I hope I was. <laughs> hope we were. Um, anybody wants to come on the show, you'd be welcome. I will be as kind as I can be. <laughs> Last words, Bob. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I, I do agree that the VAC was a very interesting one on review and I'm in, interested in topics they brought up. I think that deserves some future uh, eyeballs. And we, yes. we, we got to keep watching and, and engaging where we can. And I do look forward to maybe more personal interaction. Exactly. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We will see you next week. Take care. Hi I'm, Hi, I'm Brad Dacus, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. For over 25 years, PJI's mission has been to defend religious freedom, parental rights, and the sanctity of human life. PJI has protected patients from being taken off life support and stood up for citizens around the country facing job loss for medical decisions that should be left between them and their doctor. For free legal representation and resources, visit pji.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Baytree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.